So I said earlier in the service uh, that Advent means coming or arrival. During Advent, the church has historically fixed its eyes on the, the coming of Christ in the manger and at the end of the time, at the end of time, as the judge of the living and the dead. So Advent is a time of looking forward, a time of hope, and it's also a time of self-examination. This year, over the Sundays in Advent, we're considering uh, a few Christmas carols that begin with the words, they should be on the screen, O Come. There it is. Beautiful. Thank you, Christina, for that lovely graphic. As a group of people who love Scripture, these hymns will simply be jumping off points into the story of God as we think about the words of the Scripture. We'll be diving deeper into um, the songs and vice versa. I found deep joy of walking through the hymn that's found on the back of your bulletin. If you want to look at the back of your bulletin, that's where we'll be at the beginning of this, of this sermon time. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow with me? Paul says in the letter of 2 Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, that the word of God is not imprisoned. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will al- we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus, this morning we know that you want to be known by us. You are not a God who stands far off, who simply sends love letters from afar, but you send your very self. Lord, as we consider these words in this song, As we consider what you have done through history, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the way that you want to work in each of our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies, all of who we are, Lord. You made us and you've redeemed us by your blood. There are so many struggles in this room. There's so many things that are going on that are known and way more that are unknown. Lord, we pray for courage to step into the light, knowing that you are not a God who brings condemnation on us. As we are in Christ, we are being made into a new creation. We are being healed. So, Lord, speak now. Your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, what is the name of this song on the back of the bulletin, kids? What is it called? All right, thank you, my kids. You were ready for that. Uh, This is a song that I've sung, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful, for many, many years. Actually, as long as I can remember. I grew up in the church. And so I'm sure my mom, as I was a baby, held me on Christmas Eve services as she sang in the choir, singing, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. When I was getting my undergrad in vocal performance in a music music degree, um, I remember singing this in Latin, Adeste Fidelis. Uh, And as I've been a worship leader for the past 12 years, this has been a favorite of mine, especially at sort of candlelight Christmas Eve services. 
over the years. There's just something so simple, so joyful about this song. So let's look through it together in our bulletins. As we read, I want you to grab a pencil or a pen. I want you to underline certain words in the song, okay? The kind of words I want you to underline are the verbs. Verbs are things to do, if you didn't know that. So a verb is a word that describes someone doing something. Let's look at verse 1. I'll read it aloud. Feel free to underline. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Okay, did you notice the verbs? In the first verse, there's one verb that's repeated four times. What is that verb? Very good class, the word come. Who is the subject of this verb? The faithful, the joyful, the triumphant. We are. We're the subject. We're going to come back to that idea in a little bit. Okay, here's verse 2. Again, underline some verbs. Sing, choirs of angels. Sing in exultation. Sing, all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory to God. All glory in the highest. Okay, now there's a new set of repeated verbs. What's the verb that's repeated three times in this one, class? Very good. Sing. Who is the subject of this verb? Angels. Angels are the subject. Okay, now verse 3. Verse 3 is a little more complicated, but you can continue to try to underline words, underline verbs. Verse 3 says this, Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Jesus, to thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. What's the verb that applies to us in verse 3? What do we do? Greet. What about Jesus? What does he do in verse 3? It's a little tricky because it's an ing verb. Appear. Yes, he appears. And he's also born. And he's also given glory. So something's done to him. He's born, he's given glory, and he appears. And then, of course, we could not forget the refrain of this song. If you want to know the theological center of a song, a worship song, analyze the chorus or the refrain, the repeated part. This refrain is simply a simple call to worship. It centers the whole song in our action responding to Jesus. Once again, we have one verb repeated three times in the refrain. What verb is repeated in the refrain? Come. Okay, so that was the English lesson portion of the sermon. I'm sure Becky Collier could have done a much better job than I just did. But think with me for a moment. In this song, who is given the stuff to do? Whose actions is it most describing? Verse 1 is who? Verse 2 is who? The angels in verse 2. Verse 3, it's a lot of us. There's been a lot of criticism in recent years in worship, uh, modern worship music that, you know, people, people uh, hold up their noses at, you know, these songs just talk about us all the time, talk about what we do. It's kind of funny because a lot of times people should, will say, we should sing old hymns because these modern songs are just talking about what we do. But then when you pull out a hymn from the 1800s, like, oh, come all you faithful, it's kind of describing a lot what we do, isn't it? There's not anything really wrong with that per se. 
This song is really modeling the accounts of Christ's birth in the Gospel of Luke. When you open the Gospel of Luke, there is tons of singing. Zechariah sings. The angels sing. The shepherds shout and run. All sorts of singing going on. Mary marvels at her heart, in her heart, that all that has happened. There's obviously nothing wrong with encouraging people to follow in the footsteps of those who are singing and praising Jesus as he's born. But as I prayed over the message that God would have me give this morning, I've had you in mind, your stories. One distinctive thing about our church is that we have many people who came in here through our counseling ministry. Many people who have had big problems and small problems. We have those who have suffered abuse, those who have been to prison, those who have dealt drugs, those who have been addicted, those who have fallen into sexual sin, those who are struggling in their families. The beautiful thing about this church is that it is a safe place to be messed up. We are not perfect people in this room, but we are a people of faith, a people united by what Christ has done for us. We may have a lot of problems, but we have a lot of incredible stories. There are couples in this room who have been divorced, reconciled, and remarried. We have in this room chains of bondage that have been broken from abuse. We are not perfect, but as Mike said last week, we do not have sinless perfection. Instead, we're headed in a sinless direction. We aren't sinless, but we desire to sin less. Because of that, there's a line in this song that at times for us will just not seem true. As we sing through this song, it may strike you. The line is at the very first line, actually. O come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. I read those words, and I think to myself, what if I'm not faithful? What if I am anything but joyful? What if I'm not triumphant? What if I feel completely defeated? We want to join in with the angels. We want to join in with the shepherds, everyone worshiping the newborn Jesus. But if we've been unfaithful, or our joy seems gone, or we simply feel defeated, are we included in this praise? Are we included in this worship? What are we supposed to do? If you have had a similar thought, there's good news for you this morning. Not only do I share that thought with you, not only do many of us in this room feel that, we all go through seasons of faithlessness and joylessness and being defeated. The good news is actually even deeper than that, though. The good news was found in the passage from 2 Timothy that I read at the very beginning. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. The ultimate good news is that when you read the first lines of this song, they may not describe your life at this moment, but this first line is a perfect description of Jesus. He is faithful. He is joyful. He is triumphant. So this morning, I want to consider this opening line of the carol and go through these three words together. Not only as words that we're called to, but words that Jesus perfectly fulfills. Sound good? Okay, point number one, faithful. Just the first word, faithful. There's a Calvin and Hobbes comic about sin that I really uh, find hilarious. So if you've, ever, if you've never read Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin is a little boy who has, I think he's imaginary, I always assumed he was an imaginary tiger who's his best friend. Uh, 
They're having a conversation. Calvin, the little boy, says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hobbes says, you're worried you haven't been good? Calvin, that's just the question. It's all relative. What is Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? Then Hobbes says, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. <laughs> Calvin is worried about how Santa views him. Maybe being good is more than just trying hard not to be bad. When we put this in light of our relationship to God, it can lead to deep uncertainty and worry. And only a theological answer will help us in that worry. The Greek word harmartia literally means miss the mark. It's the word that's translated as sin. But when we look at big moments of sin in Scripture, the definition sort of falls flat. Missing the mark can kind of sound like you made a mistake on an exam. Oh, I missed that question. But throughout Scripture, sin isn't just portrayed as mistakes, but as a rebellion. C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity puts it this way. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. We must lay down our weapons. A big part of this rebellion is relying on our own performance. When we do that, we can fall into two different camps. The first is feeling so bad about our failures that we think God surely couldn't ever save us. This kind of shame keeps us from being honest with others, keeps us hiding in the dark, keeps us thinking, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. That's the first camp we can fall into when we think about our own performance as the main thing. The second camp is arrogance. When we do well, when we have a season of being really obedient, we can start to get arrogant. We can feel like we've been faithful and earned our blessing. When we do that, we fall into the trap of pride that Mike was talking about last week with the Edomites. Do you remember Obadiah 3? This is also the first time I've ever referenced Obadiah 3, Obadiah in a, uh, in a sermon, like Mike said. But Obadiah has the Edomites saying in their heart, who will bring me down to earth? They have this real arrogance. I'm the best. He, Mike mentioned Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Um, who's better than me? No one. My favorite story of Muhammad Ali is when he was on an airplane and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, and they were going to get into a little place with, uh, with turbulence, and the, the call came out, please put on your seatbelts. He did not put on his seatbelt, and so the, the flight attendant walked down and said, Mr. Ali, please put on your seatbelt, and his response was, Superman don't need no seatbelt, and then she leaned down and said, Superman don't need no airplane. That's where we can be. We can think so highly of ourselves that we think ourselves, we are better than everyone else. There's a temptation when you're experiencing on the outside looks like a blessed life that you have somehow done something to earn it. Look at this life I've made for myself. I've been so faithful. Friends, if we were faithful enough to live a good life, then Jesus did not need to come. An honest look at ourselves sees it for what it really is. The theologian Fleming Rutledge says this, 
Our failures show up against God's righteousness like splotches of garbage on a landscape of pure snow. Whew, that is depressing. But it's accurate. That's the story of Scripture. Adam and Eve's original sin was obeying the voice of the serpent and not God. The serpent said, you will be like God. Their sin was attempting to put themselves in the place of God. If sin is humans substituting themselves for God, salvation is God substituting himself for humans. This is true of the cross, but it's also true of the incarnation in general, all of Jesus' life. Jesus' life is as a man in the role of God's son, just like Israel. When you consider the story of Israel, you're thinking about the story of the people of God. God even refers to them as his son. Exodus 4.22 says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The story of Israel continues from there, where time and again God calls his people to follow him in faithfulness. He does incredible things as a way of blessing the entire world through them. They're given the law, they're given prophets, they're given instruction, and time and again, Israel chooses rebellion. Israel chooses unfaithfulness. And the end of the Old Testament is almost like a zombie movie. I'm sure that's the first time you've ever heard that phrase in your life. The Old Testament ending is kind of like a zombie movie, but think about it with me. In a zombie movie, there's a plague going all around. Everyone is untouched. Everyone's becoming a zombie, right? Except for, in these cheesy zombie movies, a small group of people who have remained pure. And then suddenly they make a discovery. They, they get the cure. And so they know to, to save the world, they must go on this airplane, fly to New York City, and then put the cure into the water supply, and then it cures the whole world, right? They get on the airplane, they go, and then the next scene of the movie is them getting out of the airplane in New York, and the doors open, and dun-dun-dun, they've all become zombies now. In the world, it's hopeless, and the movie ends. I'm glad you enjoyed that. The movie ends on a cliffhanger. That's sort of like how the Old Testament ends, though. Even God's people are infected. If Israel is God's son, his firstborn son, then God's son has failed. When we look at the life of Israel, we see a story marked not by faithfulness, but by unfaithfulness. Israel's story is our story as well. So how do we get out of this? There's a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I love in which the young boy Edmund, he has betrayed his brother, he's betrayed his sisters, he's betrayed the lion Aslan, and he's being accused before Aslan by the white witch. She is publicly listing his sins, pointing her accusing finger at this poor little boy, Edmund. All Edmund can do in that moment, Lewis says, is just look at Aslan. He doesn't know it yet, but Aslan will give him, give him life, give his life in place of Edmund's. Edmund deserved death, but his death was paid for. It's the same for us. There is a condemning voice moving against us, and more often than not, that condemnation is based on some truth, the truth of our own failures, the truth of our own unfaithfulness. But as we look to Christ, not as a way of excusing us, but as the only way of remembering our absolution, 
things begin to change. Jesus knew just how unfaithful we each would be when he went to the cross for us. While we were his enemies, Paul said, he loved us and gave himself in our place. So when we are feeling terrified like Edmund by our own failures, our own splotches of garbage on the the pure white snow, we can have the same confidence by looking to the one who would die in our place. So let's spend some time thinking about how Christ was faithful. If Israel is unfaithful, and we are very much like Israel, the people of God is unfaithful, Jesus was faithful. Jesus enters the story after the cliffhanger ending, not simply as God, but also as man, fully God and fully man, and not just as any man, but as the perfect man, and not just as any perfect man, but as the perfect Israel. So I want you in your Bible to open up to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll spend a little bit of time here. I know that uh, Tom just started his class in the Gospel of Mark, which is also an incredible gospel, obviously. But every gospel writer has a different intention, a different pattern, a different thing that he's bringing out in the life of Jesus. More than any other gospel writer, Matthew is intentionally showing Jesus as the faithful fulfillment of Israel. Matthew, through his whole story, shows how Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. The very beginning of the story of Israel is the book of what? (laughs) Someone's been paying attention in the sermon series that we're in. The book of Genesis. Thank you, Janky. Biblos Genesios in Greek. And on the first page, we see God creating the heavens and the earth. And then we have all these genealogies that we're very familiar with in the church now that Mike has bravely preached through so many of them. In a genealogy, we have something like this, okay? Chapter 5 of Genesis starts like this. This is the record of the genealogy of Adam. Then it goes through Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, and on and on and on and on and on. In other words, it starts with the first one, a parent, and then it goes to all the children. Matthew's gospel begins the exact same way. Look at verse 1. We would expect the list to start with the oldest one, the first in the family, Abraham, But it doesn't start there. It doesn't say this is the record of the genealogy of Abraham. Instead, Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It has this idea that before Abraham existed, there was Jesus. So it starts with Jesus, and it goes through this whole family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Judah, and Perez, and Hezron. You can look through this whole, it's almost a whole page in my Bible the genealogy, down through the exile to Babylon, and all the way to Mathen, to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. By showing us Jesus at the top and at the bottom of the genealogy, Matthew is showing us that he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, as we sang last week. He is God entering into the story as a human to rescue his rebellious creation. Abraham, the beginning of the nation of Israel, was given a promise from God. It's in Genesis 12. God says, In you all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise. That's where the story is going, God says. And in Matthew, maybe you need to turn the page, we see this coming true the very beginning of chapter 2. 
as the wise men from the east, probably from the nation of Persia, travel to meet and worship Jesus the king. They give him golds of frankincense and gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They represent the nations of the earth coming to bless Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. The promise is coming true. The second part of chapter 2 in Matthew is echoing another part of Israel's story in Genesis. In Genesis, the third generation of Abraham, we just finished his portion, is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Eleven of the sons pick on one of the brothers who has a beautiful coat and who has dreams. Who is that person? Joseph. Joseph is taken by his brothers, sold into slavery, and lives in Egypt. And even though these scary things happen to Joseph, it is all according to the will of God to rescue the entire family from a famine. Joseph hears from God in dreams, and the entire family finds their safety in Egypt. Now, think about Joseph in Matthew. Joseph, the husband of Mary, he too has a father named Jacob. He too receives dreams from God. Both the Josephs, those in Genesis and in Matthew, have exactly three dreams. And he too travels to Egypt to find safety for his family. He takes Jesus and Mary to Egypt to save Jesus from being killed by Herod. Here's the point. Jesus is reliving the story of Israel, which brings us to the next book of the Old Testament. What's the next book after Genesis class? Exodus. And in Exodus, there's a new character, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh. This pharaoh is so hungry for power that he enslaves the people, the family of Joseph, the people of Israel. He is so desperate to be in charge and to do what he wants that he even kills little babies, the sons of the Israelites, so they won't become too strong and rise up and take over his kingdom. He's worried about his throne, and so he kills babies, baby boys. In Exodus, there's one little baby boy who is rescued in a basket in the river. Who is that? Moses. What happens in chapter 2 of Matthew? There's also an evil king trying to kill babies. When King Herod in Israel hears about the birth of the Messiah, the king, he becomes fearful of his throne, and he plots. He sends his soldiers to Bethlehem and kills all the boys under the age of two. But in the same way Moses was rescued from Pharaoh, baby Jesus is rescued from Herod. God warns Joseph in a dream. So Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. Just like Moses as an adult returned to Egypt with his brother Aaron, spoke out against the evil king Pharaoh with miracles and cries of let my people go. There's a person who does that kind of thing in Matthew chapter 3, a person who speaks out against these corrupt rulers. Cain already mentioned him. He is John, John the Baptist. He calls the Pharisees and leaders a brood of vipers. Aaron and Moses bring judgment to the corrupted leaders in the book of Exodus. John brings that same judgment in the Gospel of Matthew, because Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. Okay, what's next in the story? The people of Israel finally live Egypt, led by the Spirit, a pillar of fire by day, a cloud by night. They pass miraculously through the waters of the Red Sea. What happens next in Matthew? Jesus steps into the water of the Jordan River. He repents for sins that he never committed. He stands alongside the people of God in baptism. He's submerged under the water by John. 
he rises up out of the water and hears those words every child needs to hear from a parent. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus comes out of the water, he then goes somewhere. Israel comes out of the Red Sea. They go somewhere too. Where do they go? Into the wilderness, into the desert for 40 years. They go into Israel. They go into the desert, into the wilderness for 40 years of testing now, do they trust God through this period of testing in the wilderness? Deuteronomy describes it well. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that they, might, might, that they might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do those words sound familiar to you? Man does not live on bread alone. Throughout their wilderness journey, God was testing the people of Israel as a father tests a son. What does Jesus do after he passes through the water? As Jesus comes up out of the water, he hears in Matthew 3, 17, and behold, a voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Israel goes through the water. Jesus goes through the water. Israel goes through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes through the wilderness for 40 days. When Israel was in the wilderness, they grumbled and they complained. When Jesus was in the wilderness, he was tested also, but he remained faithful. He resisted Satan's temptations with the word of God, the very words that talked about the people of Israel being in the wilderness. He used as weapons against Satan. Next in the story of Israel, God brings them to Mount Sinai. What are the Israelites given at Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments and the law. You want to guess what happens when Jesus comes out of the wilderness? Check it out. Chapter 4, chapter 5. He gathers people, and then he also goes up on a mountain. And he gives what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is all about taking the words of God's law given at Mount Sinai, applying them in a deeper way to the heart. Jesus is God himself, standing on the mountain, giving God's word from the mountain. But he also is the faithful son of God, living out every word of the Sermon on the Mount. If you ever want to just be, have your mind blown, read through the Sermon on the Mount, simply thinking this, how does Jesus live this out? Every single thing that he says, he goes and does. Because Jesus is reliving the story of Israel. He is the faithful, obedient one. After Moses comes down the mountain, what happens? Rebellion after rebellion. They break the promises they made. In fact, there are 10 specific instances of rebellions that happen, and God responds with 10 plagues on his people. One of them involves Moses' sister Miriam getting leprosy. So Israel leaves Sinai where they've heard God's word for them to live by, and they just utterly fail. Numbers 14.22 says this, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. So Israel comes off the mountain. They rebel ten times. They suffer ten plagues. 
Jesus comes off the mountain and something different happens. There aren't 10 rebellions, but rather 10 miracles, exactly 10 miracles. And they match the 10 rebellions, the 10 plagues, and invert them. Instead of someone getting leprosy as a curse, someone's healed of their leprosy as a blessing. It's as if Matthew is saying on every single page, look, this is what should have happened with God's people. If they had received the law and lived it out, they wouldn't have gotten plagues and judgment. They would have had a flourishing, healed life. Now, we can go on and on and on through Matthew. But here's the point. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of Israel. They were unfaithful. He was not. We are unfaithful. He is not. Okay, let's go to point two. I promise. Point two and three are much shorter than point one was. Point two is joyful. So we're thinking about the second song. Joyful, or the second, second two words, joyful and triumphant. First, joyful. Hopefully, as you're sitting here hearing the story of Jesus, your joy is beginning to increase as you see the beauty of the story that God is telling through history. I'll say this about joy. You can never make it for yourself. Joy isn't something that we can just stir up in ourselves, by ourselves, because joy is always relational. True joy comes from being with someone. It's more than being happy. It's more than just putting on a happy face when things are going well. Joy is resilient because joy is possible even in hard circumstances. And the joy of Jesus is seen throughout his life. We see Jesus, his joy, in his faithful presence with his disciples, even when he knows they're going to betray him, even when they're going through persecution, we see that he, he truly believes it is good for me to be here with you, disciples. We see that through his life, but it's even more than that. Hebrews 12, 2 describes the joy of Jesus in this way. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? What did he not have that he needed after, that he would get after the cross? It wasn't perfect relationship with the Father. He already had that. What was the joy that he could only gain on the other side of the cross? It was you and me too. When you see that you are the joy of Jesus then you can start to make him your joy. When you see that you are the joy of Jesus, only then can you begin to see Jesus as your joy. He endured the pain and shame of the cross for you, which leads us to our third and final word, triumphant. Everyone say triumphant. Bringing this home. Okay. Many of us tend to feel anything but triumphant. Not going to talk about there's a lot of triumphalism going around, especially in politics today. But our tendency, I think, is to see the sin that's inside us and the sin around us to shape us into less confidence and more of a feeling of defeat. And it actually can tempt us to give up. If we're unfaithful and joyless, we tend to just feel defeated. But here is where Jesus' ultimate victory comes in. That, that word triumphant is so powerful here. 
For the cross is the ultimate victory against our enemies, sin, death, and the devil, even against our own unfaithfulness. John Stott gives this epic description in his classic book, The Cross of Christ. I'm going to read you this whole quote because it's just so good. He says this, It is impossible to read the New Testament without being impressed by the atmosphere of joyful confidence which pervades it. There was no defeatism about the early Christians. They spoke, rather, of victory. For example, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. Again, in all these things, adversities and dangers, we are more than conquerors. Once more, God always leads us in triumphal procession. Victory, conquest, triumph, overcoming. This was the vocabulary of those first followers of the risen Lord. For if they spoke of victory, they knew they owed it to the victorious Jesus. They said so in the text, which I have so far quoted only in truncated form. What Paul actually wrote was, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And God leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. It is he who overcame, has triumphed, and moreover, did it by the cross. Of course, any contemporary observer who saw Christ die would have listened with astonished incredulity to the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. Had he not been rejected by his own nation, betrayed, denied, and deserted by his own disciples, and executed by authority from the Roman pure curator. Look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on his cross, robbed of all movement, of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails or ropes or both, pinned there and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. If there is any victory, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice, and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, And the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. On the cross, brothers and sisters, we see the ultimate example of that statement, salvation is God substituting himself for man. Not only did he live the life that we were supposed to live, he died the death that our rebellion had demanded. Adam, in the beginning, was disobedient about the tree, and we all are, but Jesus was obedient about his tree. And he changed the world as he rose back to life to claim victory over death itself, and now he lives to make us like himself, to conform us to his image. Jesus is faithful, joyful, triumphant. These are the outcomes of his righteousness. And we stake all our hope on the fact that God imputes his righteousness onto us. He gives us the righteousness of Christ. He looks at me in all of my mess. 
And he sees my faithfulness as Christ's faithfulness. It's not my level of faithfulness, joy or victory, but his. The gospel, my friends, is this. We are more sinful than we realized, but we are more loved than we dared to hope. So I urge you this morning, let your failures, let your unfaithfulness, let your joylessness, let your feelings of defeat be a springboard into God's grace. In the face of your unfaithfulness, come to Jesus. Confess your sin. Step out into the light of healing. When you have no joy, consider him who endured torture for the joy set before him. Think about the way that Jesus must love you. And when you are defeated, behold the victory of Christ on your behalf. So come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the glory of God in the face of a man. You are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And you are moving towards us in love and healing. Jesus, as we struggle through this life, as we have road bumps, as we have besetting sins, as we have situations that, Lord, we just cannot fix. Help us to behold you. We are unfaithful, but you remain faithful. Jesus, speak to us now as we pray. Give us confidence and courage to come to you. Speak through these songs as we close our time, Lord. This time is for you. We give it up. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.